Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Welcome everybody to uh, the Typology Podcast. I'm Ian Morgan Cron, and uh, I am so glad to be on the show this week. And of course, my my good friend, producer, engineer, my spiritual guide, <laughs> Anthony Skinner, right here in the, the studio with me. Anthony, you good? I'm good, Ian. It's good to be back in the studio with you. Hey, I'm excited about today's show. Yeah, tell us about our guest. Oh, man. We have on our show today an old friend of mine, actually, Amy Julia Becker, and she is a one on the Enneagram, a perfectionist. Fantastic. And did you know, Anthony, that a huge... According to analytics and everything else, a huge number of people who listen to our show are nines and ones. Nines and ones, that's right. And my youngest daughter is a one, so I'm really looking forward to this episode. All right, so let me tell you guys about Amy Julia Becker, often uh, goes by the name AJ. So Amy Julia is the author of uh, a new book, White Picket Fences, Turning Toward Love in a World Divided by Privilege. And she's also the author of Small Talk, Learning from My Children About What Matters Most. That came out in 2014. Um, uh, a Good and Perfect Gift, Faith, Expectations, and a Little Girl Named Penny. And I hope we're going to get into a conversation a little bit about Penny with AJ. And that book was named one of the top books of 2011 by Publishers Weekly. Also wrote Penelope Ayers, A Memoir of Faith, Family, and Disability. That's appeared in the Washington Post, USA Today, Christian, oh, I mean, the list goes on and on, the Atlantic, blah, blah, blah. She and her husband, Peter, who is also an old friend, they got three kids, Penny, William, and Mary Lee, and they live in Western Connecticut. That's my old home turf. It's going to be a good show. It's going to be a good, good show today for Enneagram Ones or for anyone who loves them. AJ, welcome to Typology. Well, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Well... I love ones. I'm glad to hear that. I really do. I I have such an affection for them. I think in part because I, I understand a little bit about their blessings and their blights. Because as a four, I go to uh, one when I'm in a good space. But you know what? I often go to the low side of one mm. because I'm also a bit of a neurotic at mm. times. So when I'm, you know, I can slide around inside of one a lot. And, and so I'm really, really excited to, to talk to you about it. Now, my first question is to you, how much fun is it for a one to write a book? Oh, I love writing books. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do. Um, yeah, books feel very comfortable to me. Um, like a really fun puzzle and challenge. So I like the thinking about the book. I like structuring the book. I like writing the book. I like editing the book. I like, I really actually like every aspect of writing a book. All right. Well, then I, I'm sure you've read, uh, I know you've read uh, uh, my friend Annie Lamott's uh, book, Bird by Bird. Uh, I have. 
Yeah, I read it almost every time I, I sit sit down to write a book. You know, it's like the first thing I do, and of course I read that that first uh, or yeah, I think it's the first chapter. Forgive me, everybody, for bad language, but this is the name of the chapter: the shitty first draft. Right. Oh, I know it well. Yes. And it's so helpful. But this is what she says in it. Uh, she says, "Perfectionism is the perfectionism. Excuse me, is the voice of the oppressor, the enemy of the people. It will keep you cramped and insane your whole life, and it is the main obstacle between you and a shitty first draft." I think perfectionism is based on the obsessive belief that if you run carefully enough, hitting each step, stone just right, you won't have to die. The truth is that you will die anyway, and that a whole lot of people who aren't even looking at their feet are going to do a whole lot better than you and have a lot more fun while they're doing it. That's great. Is that great? That's so great. So great. And it's funny. That is so true for me in so many areas of my life, and less so with writing. It like I don't get. Uh, I don't think I get as stuck on this getting started when it comes to writing, maybe because I have enough practice in knowing that it might start as a shitty first draft and it'll get there eventually. It's things like um, taking a yoga class for the first time. Like that is where I get paralyzed by, but I don't know how to do it. So what if I don't do it right? And what if I don't get commended by the teacher? And what if I, you know, look like a fool or what if I feel like a fool that that's it's, those types of things, like taking risks in public <laughs> that I feel very, very uh, hesitant to do, if not paralyzed by the thought of. Yes. In fact, you've just underscored a, a key feature of Enneagram Ones, which is that they are uh, afraid to um, do things in public, to perform things in public that uh, others m- might see them make mistakes uh, doing. Is that true? Is that what you're discussing? Absolutely. Um, Yes. So that, I mean, again, I can think of the first time I was invited to a yoga class. I can think of a time when um, my husband, this is back when we were dating, so many years ago, said, "Um, let's go shoot baskets. And Mm. I said, I've never done that before. And he said, well, so let's go do it. And I was like, but I've never done that before. <laughs> it was this conversation that kept going for a while. He's like, right, I'm inviting you to try. And and that, again, was like, but you might see me fail. And he's like, I, I don't care. Try the try shooting a basket, you know. Um, and it was this moment of recognizing something about myself that I didn't understand, which was how hard it is for me to try new things if I don't know, if I don't feel like I guarantee that, I will succeed in it. Now, is that um, because you have sort of an idealized self that you want to present to the world, that you're trying to um, be someone that um, appears as if um, they are free of error in in public? Uh, Yeah, that's a good question. I think it has more to do with a desire to get things right. And this is where... this can be both a blessing and a curse. So um, it can be very crippling. Um, And I have definitely, like, I had a severe eating disorder in high school and college, and I have struggled with lots of anxiety and, again, cut myself off from experiencing some of the joys that come from trying new things and taking risks. But I also have a sense of, like, um, I just want to do it right that can be really beautiful. Like, I really want to 
care for someone in the correct way. Or like, I really want to meet the needs of someone else, or I really want to, you know, in my, whether it's a relationship with a human being or with God or in presenting something to the world, like I want to do it in a way that is actually helpful. I'm a one with a two wing also. So like, I want to, I want to give it in a way that is yes, received well in terms of me looking good, but I think it has more to do with like, I just want it to be right. Mm. You know, you've just again highlighted so many features of ones in that in that one little uh, statement there. So you just articulated it so beautifully. What number is Peter? He thinks he's a three. Right. That's what I would have guessed. Yeah. Um, um, and just the whole like, so we can look a lot like each other because we're both very achievement oriented, successful people. Um, but if you look at that whole sense of like the shadow side or the um, you know, course in or whatever you want, language you want to use around it, he is much more likely to, in order to appear, uh, you know, like he's got it together to deceive someone. Um, whereas the thought of like, I care a lot about how I look in front of other people, but that sense of like doing the right thing is much stronger in me than the need to appear right. Like, mm. I don't know if they're so anyway, we, we can appear similar, but with different motivations, um, for sure. So this is really important. Uh, again, thank you. I'm a four. Um, and as I said earlier, you know, I can slush around sometimes on the, uh, the low side of one, even though it's typically where I go in, when I'm in security. Um, and, uh, but my reason for going to that is different than yours because my underlying motivation is different, right? So for me, I often feel like, man, I have a lot of one qualities. It's not because I don't want to miss, it's not because I see error, it's because I have an ideal in my mind. And if I don't live up to the ideal, uh, then my those critical voices kick in, you know? And for threes, threes often tell me that they initially mistyped themselves as ones but it was because they were driven toward being their perfectionism was trying to drive them towards success you know if i do this perfectly i'll look like or achieve success you know and so this underlying motivation thing is so important people it's not the traits or characteristics that determine your type it's really the underlying motivation uh so yeah fantastic that's fantastic now you just said something that you know, sent a flag up my my uh, up on the idea poll. Um, so you just shared in a very vulnerable way, really, that you had an eating disorder in was it high school and college? Mm-hmm. So I meet a disproportionate number of ones who suffered from uh, both anxiety, as you mentioned, and though in particular eating disorders. Why do you think that is? Well, I am fascinated to learn, and this has been pretty recent for me, the whole um, head, heart, gut aspect of the Enneagram and the gut being um, a one, you know, center. Um, And because my, actually, my eating disorder began with a literally physically paralyzed stomach. So I'm like the embodiment of um, something there where uh, there was this real mental connection where I think I had um, a lot of difficulty, and this is still true, expressing any emotion that I see as negative. So sadness, anger, fear, actually even anxiety, like those are all negative, that, that, therefore they are not 
quote unquote right and I cannot express them. And I've grown in this area, but I think as a kid, I didn't have any words for that or understanding of that. Um, and I think there was like, truly, I felt paralyzed when I um, got to high school and I was a super high achiever, um, got, you know, great grades, had the lead in the school play, was, you know, leader and blah, 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 all these different areas. Um, and I ended up losing um, 15 pounds and in the hospital and uh, did not, it took a good six years to uh, really recover from all of that. Um, so I think some of it does have to do with like the way we store feelings. And then, and again, I, I, having an eating disorder was not about appearance so much as it was about um, control, anxiety, again, some of those like deeper motivations uh, I, that I still haven't completely worked out what was going on, um, you know, because I'm going back to my 15-year-old self um, rather than who I am now. But I do think a lot of, it doesn't surprise me that that's characteristic of um, a lot of us ones. Mm. Yes, I think it's also probably related to the um, issues around control, Mm -hmm. And, you know, ones uh, are pretty tamped down uh, oftentimes. A uh, lot of stuffing of anger, need to control feelings that they deem unacceptable or inappropriate. Yeah. What are those for you? Like, what are some of those inappropriate feelings other than anger, which we know is a, or resentment, which is a key feature for ones? What, what other kinds of emotions do you tend to squash and are they related somehow to this issue around control and, and, and eating? Yeah, so I think, um, I mean, anger, again, is something I have a really hard time accessing. So that's certainly there. And then um, I think sadness is also an emotion that for a long time I deemed unacceptable. Um, and even the worry, which is um, funny, because I do think anxiety is also associated with being a one. But again, you're not supposed to worry. And especially as a Christian, there's it's like, do not worry okay, I'm not supposed to do that. So I can't admit that I'm doing that. And so I can't actually bring it to God and deal with it. And that's been as an adult who I think and hope and praise, like having some spiritual growth in this area, the um, understanding that all of these things, all of these emotions are actually very human, very much a part of me. And I am invited to bring them to God rather than pretend they don't exist has been very healing and freeing. But um, when I was a teenager, I did not have any recognition of that. I remember telling a therapist, oh, no, I've never been angry. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, in retrospect, ding, 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 <laughs> here's a problem here. But I mean, that was really what I thought. Oh, no, I've never been angry. I don't feel that. Um, but similarly, I mean, even to this day, I cry far less often than Peter does. Um, and, you know, some of that is just like in watching a movie, but some of that is just true in life that um, emotions are just less accessible to me. I don't think they're less present, but they're less accessible to me. And some of that is just, I live in my head a lot. Um, but at the same time, I do think there's, um, when I'm able to connect my body, my emotions and my mind, uh, there's a real freedom there that, uh, I did not have certainly, um, when I was a kid and in more recent years that has gone in the direction I'm much more, um, the doing aspect of a one, the one just needing to do all the time and never stopping. Um, and so for me, I recognized maybe five years ago that alcohol was becoming my intervention there. It was, um, oh, I can rest because 
wine is a signal that I can rest rather than, no, no, you can just give yourself that. Like you could just stop working and take a bath, which as a one, I'm like, why would I do that? Why would I take a bath? Can I read a book while I'm taking a bath? Like, can I? Right. So that's all, anyway, that's all wrapped up in that. I'm not sure that answered your question, but that's where my thoughts went. Okay, I don't want to hover on this eating disorder thing too long, but it actually is a rich space for a second, okay? Uh, for every n- number, uh, but particularly for ones. All right, so ones often have what we call the trap door. Hmm. So uh, a trapdoor is usually a secret addiction or behavior that is quote unquote shameful because you can't tamp down all those animal instincts that you have without them leaking out somewhere or needing to get out. Right. They just they just won't cooperate with that program. So um, I think, for example, uh, alcohol could be one, right? You wouldn't, you know, do that necessarily at a party, right? Like get a little buzzy because that wouldn't be appropriate. But you might do it in private, mm-hmm. in secret, right? Sure. Or, or, and the same with eating disorders, which also uh, have a secretive component to them, right? Uh, particularly, I think with bulimia more, which is like, okay, this is me. This is something I can do that's uh, maybe rebellious or pushing against whoever I thought or whatever I thought was the source that was controlling me uh, as a little person. Like, I, you can't control my eating. You know what I mean? Like, I have complete control over that. So I wonder if that's part of a trapdoor syndrome that oftentimes ones have. I mean, all of that resonates for me. When I think back on the eating disorder, I went one step further, which is to say, you couldn't even call it bulimia because my stomach was paralyzed. Mm. It's like, it's not my fault. I I eat whatever. I mean, literally it was like I would eat and the food would not be processed in my body. And so it would be essentially regurgitated. I mean, this is much information, but there was a sense of um, there being a lot of, um, yeah, a lot of secrecy and shame. But I also was, again, doing it in an acceptable way. Oh, no, I don't have an eating disorder. I'm sick. The doctors have told me I am sick and they can't do anything to cure me. Oh, well, when I eat, I throw up. It's not my fault. You know, so even that was kind of controlled. Um, And I do think the freedom of trying uh, to understand and to learn my humanity, which is to say, limitations that may or may not have anything to do with sin, but just are part of me being human. And then also actual, you know, brokenness and sin within my humanity and that there's a freedom in actually um, admitting that before God, before other people, that there can be healing in those places. That's where growth has come. Mm. Tell people about the topic on your new book and how you see it, if you do, as related to your personality and how, um, you know, what part of the perfectionist in you was inspired to write this particular book? So my latest book is a book about the concept of privilege. So it's about race, class, disability, um, but it's written as a memoir. So it's really, as someone introduced me the other day as a girl who is white and grew up in, uh, well, a little town in North Carolina, but then in Greenwich, Connecticut, she said, oh, yeah, and I went to Princeton University. You are an expert in privilege. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so I have done privilege perfectly. Um No, so I've been, as a mother of a child with a disability, I um, have been really concerned about issues of um, 
injustice and social division, not only because of the ways they um, exclude people from opportunities, but actually also because of the ways in which people who have privilege, which is ostensibly supposed to benefit people like me, um, are harmed by it. So, um, you know, rates, you probably know all this, substance abuse, anxiety, depression, um, eating disorders, all of those things, yes, have to do with my oneness. They also have to do with my whiteness and my affluence and um, sociologically where I come from. And so my, um, I think my desire in writing this book was actually to talk about the harm that comes from privilege, not only for those excluded from it, but also those on the inside of it, and to ask the question of whether there's possibilities for healing. So the way I see that related to being a one is the um, that sense of um, how the world is not right, and I want it to be right. Um, and uh, there can be an almost, a, again, an idealism or an oversimplification in my mind of, well, so if everybody just did the right thing, then we'd be okay. So let's go do the right thing, people. <laughs> like, and But really wanting to wrestle through, um, especially when it comes to some of these big social issues, one of the issues for me as a one, and also as a white person who has a sense of like, I can go make a difference in the world, um, is like, but I, I can't fix this. I can't, there, I can't control this problem. I can't fix it. Um, and that's debilitating, but has also led me to a lot of prayer and a lot of um, asking a lot of questions. And I think a place of deeper humility and a sense of, well, what do I have to offer? I have, I can write, I can write a book. Um, and I, and again, I hope it's a book that instead of driving people into places of shame guilt, defensiveness, despair is actually hopeful um, and turning towards love. But yeah, I do think the um, that sense of wanting the world to be made right, which can be a very positive aspect of being a one, is very much at work here. It's funny. So many, many people have said to me, you are so courageous to write this book. And again, to me, courage is going to a yoga class when I don't know the people and I don't know if I'm going to do it right. And it's not that I wasn't scared to write this book, but it also felt like I didn't have it. And it wasn't an option. It was like, but that's the right thing to do. So, of course, I'll be writing this book like that. That wasn't. Um, yeah, it's not hard for me to put myself out there if I think I it is the right thing to do, whereas it is hard for me to put myself out there in these far less in some ways, less risky and vulnerable ways. And that also, I think, um, again, is a positive energy as a one. Like, I'm willing to put myself out there when it really seems to matter to me, um, even though it holds me back in other ways. So so to remind our listeners, uh, Amy, is, I mean, Amy Julia is the author of the new book, White Picket Fences, Turning Toward Love in a World Divided by Privilege, just came out on NAV Press. And I'm, it sounds to me, AJ, like, you know, uh, you really lean into that reformer side of one, you know, some some ones are, are more fixated on the immediate environment or self-improvement or improving the immediate world. And and I'm sure you have a little bit of that, but also many of them have this this reformer side, which is there are systemic problems in the world. And I'm I feel called to really dismantle or make them go away to make things right that sounds like it's your thing 
Yeah, I mean, and and I will say, I Peter and I were taking a walk um, a couple years ago when I was working on this book, and I said, but Peter, I'm not an activist. Um, and he said, yes, you are. You're just a very polite activist. I mean, literally in fifth grade, the um, I went to a school and the merry-go-round was deemed dangerous. And I was like, well, but we can fix that what's I want to go on the merry-go-round and so literally I did a little fundraising campaign and like raised the $200 or whatever it was to fix the merry-go-round and off we went and again to me that was like well problem solution the problem of privilege not quite so easy to address as oh okay let's just go raise some money and it'll all get better um and so it Yes. So I am very much on that reformer side. And having, again, a child with a disability has, I think, opened not just my intellect to the problems out there, but my heart as well. Um, and also recognizing, again, not this is a um, me needing to go and help all those poor people out there, but actually um, me needing to connect in my own humanity to all the people out there who have something to give me while I I hope and pray have something to offer in return um, that there's a reciprocity and a mutual blessing that comes if we actually are able to get outside of our fences um, for lack of a better word and and start to not just communicate but yeah address those deeper systemic issues that are I think very much at work in our culture. Wow, this is a very timely and important book. I, I, I mean, I'm going to go out and get my copy of White Picket Fences as soon as AJ mails one to me. <laughs> because that would be the appropriate thing to do. That would be the appropriate thing to do, right, Anthony? Yes. Right, okay. So one copy for Anthony, too. Um, AJ, you know, one of the things that I've been learning lately is that my kids play a pivotal role in my journey of healing from the negative aspects of my personality like they really they really help me um as part of my treatment plan you know uh and with the enneagram and you have a disabled daughter and i want to know how has that journey helped you wrestle with perfectionism being a perfectionist oh my gosh yeah so um so the book I wrote in 2011, A Good and Perfect Gift, um, has that word perfect Hold on. in the title. Yeah, I was going to say, I was going to say <laughs> that can't be better. Um, and really, it is a meditation on perfectionism, that book, because when I was, um, we found out Penny had Down syndrome two hours after she was born. And the word, the language used around Down syndrome is imperfection, defect, abnormality. I mean, mm. there's the, the language itself it t speaks to that. And um, I was really wrestling with my own perfectionism and my own set of expectations around her. Um, but also actually at that time, um, like a biblical idea of perfection, that verse where Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect was really like bothering me. And I finally looked it up. I was in seminary at the time. So I was able to look in a Greek dictionary and see that uh, different meaning of perfection and perfection actually as wholeness, as um, the end for which you are created rather than conforming to an ideal. Um, and so I was able to live, to really understand, because I was starting to understand intuitively Penny as a perfect gift, as the gift who I was so intended to 
be given and that the world was intended to be given. And yet that didn't go with this idea of being perfect. And yet that, so that idea of, um, and it's used more than once in the Bible of Jesus's perfection being more of a wholeness and that being what we are invited into also was tremendously freeing for me as a perfectionist. Um, and really a reminder, again, I, I think one of the things perfectionism does is it makes you very, can make you very lonely, like this sense of I need to be um, providing for everything for myself. And one of the things that a child with a disability always has is very obvious needs. And all of us have needs, but it's really easy for a perfectionist to hide those needs, going back to what we were talking about before. So there was an invitation to me to actually admit my needs. So in being given Penny, it wasn't just that I came to accept her as someone who was both beautiful and broken, vulnerable, needy, and gifted, but to accept myself as that. So that was a huge you know, life lesson in perfectionism. And then my other two kids, and this is actually what my book Small Talk is about, my other two kids came along and they were, um, so if Penny was like the dramatic lesson, they were the ordinary lesson, just the like day in, day out, you can't get him to put his pants on. And now you've thrown a pillow at your four-year-old. Like, what is going on? You you say you don't get angry and you're throwing pillows at your child, you know? Um, so that was also a, another set of uh, what does it mean to, yeah, admit limitations, see my own humanity, receive grace and um, growth in the process. Um, and yeah, they taught me, have taught me, are teaching me a lot as well. Yeah, my I have a son, Aiden, who's a seven, and I'm a four, right? And Aiden is all joy, and mm. sometimes I can be all Eeyore. You know, I can, <laughs> I you know, I can go toward the melancholy, and he's been part of my healing. And I think for every type on the Enneagram to realize that your mm. children, each and every one of them, is uh, really uh, how would I put this? They are they they are a question. Each of them is a question for us, you know, like, where is your joy uh, or my eight daughter? Where is your courage in the, your ability to speak to power and et cetera? So everybody think of your children as a curriculum uh, for healing and change in, in your personality. It's really powerful. You know, uh, AJ, I have um, a gift that I give to ones a lot of the time. And for everyone listening, I want you to hear me on this. Uh, AJ, you know about kintsugi bowls. Uh, so, you, yes, you, yes. Right? So, kins- I just was reading about them. Yeah, so kintsugi. Uh, do you know Mako Fujimura? I do, yeah. Yeah, so. I mean, I've met him once, but I know his work. So, Mako is a Japanese uh, American artist, a, a dear friend of mine, and. Uh, he and I are actually uh, working on a series of lectures for Fuller Seminary on the wabi-sabi, not wasabi, but the wabi-sabi tradition in Japan, out of which kintsugi came. So, yeah. so let me explain it to you, for yeah. those who don't know. So kintsugi, um, I can't remember what century it was, but uh, there was a Chinese uh, ruler who dropped one of his favorite or his favorite tea bowl and it shattered and he was heartbroken so he sent um uh, some of his servants very far away to uh, i believe japan to get this um uh, craftsman to try and put it back together and what came back 
was these bowls, this bowl that <clears throat> had been put back together uh, with an adhesive and uh, mixed in the adhesive was pure gold. Mm-hmm. And so what you get is this bowl with all these cracks visible with gold inside them. And so the Wabi Sabi tradition says that in your wholeness, right, you are not as beautiful, actually, uh, potentially, as you would be if you were broken and imperfect. So it's actually finding perfection in imperfection, right? And realizing that in your wholeness, it may not be as beautiful as you would be if you were... um, showing forth or advertising in a way it's an opportunity for grace if you think of the gold as grace right so if, yeah so everybody listen to me if you're a one or if you know a one you go on etsy or someplace like that and you find a kintsugi k-i-n-t-s-u-g-i bowl or and just tell them put it on a mm-hmm. shelf so that every day they're reminded that in their brokenness, there's this gold that runs through the cracks. And it actually is more beautiful than if they were perfect in the first place. Does that make sense? I love that so much. It makes so much sense. Um, and I think that has been the experience of my life, but especially of my parenting life, of being broken open. And then, yeah, those cracks filled in mm. with such more beauty and grace and light than there was there before. Mm. I think of Eugene O'Neill's quote, I'm going to barbarize it here, but it's something to the effect of um, man is broken. He needs mending. Grace is the glue. Mm. Amen. That's good. So, AJ, I want to thank you for, for being on the show. This has been a rich episode, hasn't it, Anthony? Yes. So good. Really rich. I want to remind everybody that uh, AJ's new book is White Picket Fences Turning Toward Love in a World Divided by Privilege on Nav Press, recently dropped on the street. I know it's going to be fantastic when I read it. And uh, AJ, thanks for being on with us. Thank you so much for having me. It was really, really fun. Yeah. And tell us, uh, what's your website? How can people find you? AmyJuliaBecker.com. Wonderful. And I've got all sorts of stuff over there. Would you give my best to Peter? I will. And he said to say hello to you as well. Oh, good. Yeah, what a fine person. And for you, Typology listeners, don't forget, we have a perfect gift for you to give to yourself or to others. Uh, Just go to iancron.com forward slash shop and find your Enneagram number mug or Enneagram t-shirt. I promise they are wonderful. In fact, you can drop it. You can drop your mug and take the shards and make your own kintsugi. <laughs> what, what do you think, guys? That's a great idea. In fact, I think I'm going to do it myself. <laughs> Everybody. I need a one mug. The I'll send you a you send me a mug, and then I will break it. And All get right. some painted gold. Yeah, you can go online and find a kintsugi repair kit. I've already ordered mine. <laughs> I'm not fooling. I did. All right, dear friends, we love you. We love you. We love you. Whatever number you are, you are beautiful and called to the journey of becoming whole. And remember the words of Oscar Wilde, be yourself. Everybody else is already taken. See you next time. <laughs>